you starting something now, you have the wherewithal, like the stamina and the fear and like almost the crazy factor to start something in this market when everyone else is flight to like a good income. So you're right. I hadn't thought about that. But I haven't seen the type of founders I saw starting seed stage companies a few years ago. It's a totally different crowd. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fintech Leaders, a weekly podcast where we learn from today's global leaders in fintech business and beyond. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa, and I'm a co-founder of Gilgamesh Ventures, a venture capital fund that backs early stage fintech entrepreneurs in the U.S., Canada, and Latin America. If you enjoyed this conversation, I encourage you to share it and please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your show so more people can learn about fintech leaders. In this episode, I sit down with Mercedes Bent, partner at Lightspeed, a global venture capital firm with over $18 billion in committed capital that's backed over 500 companies over the last 23 years, including Snap, Affirm, Fair, Grubhub, Carta, Bland, and a long list of great firms. In this episode, we discuss investing in marketplaces or credit-driven businesses and what founders and investors should keep in mind when looking at these verticals, benefits of having a global investment team, and how Lightspeed often invests in similar trends and businesses around the world, the Latin American fintech opportunity. Mercedes leads the Latin practice at Lightspeed. What are some of the biggest ideas taking place in Brazil, Mexico, and beyond? Lessons for emerging VCs, Lightspeed's portfolio construction strategy, and a lot more. Hope you enjoyed this great episode with Mercedes from Lightspeed. All right, Mercedes, how are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. Utter, do you you're joining? Uh, I'm guessing all the way from the Bay Area in California. Yep, San Francisco. I'm in Dog Patch today. Very cool. Very cool. Great. I mean, Mercedes, we have a quite a few topics to talk about. You are a fintech investor. You look at correct me if I'm wrong, but you look at the Americas, right? Not just focus on a single country. So, you know, it's going to be interesting to get your perspective here. Tell us a bit about your story and also about Lightspeed. I think folks would be interested to learn a little bit about Lightspeed. Sure. Yeah. So Lightspeed, I'll start with our firm. You know, we got our start as an early stage enterprise infrastructure firm. And so we always love to go deep on product. We love to get it deep in the moats and in the technical structure stack of a company and understand just what are the moats that are going to derive from that? Why does it create a competitive advantage? But, you know, that was 20 years ago that we, over 20 years ago, we got started. Today, we're a global multi-stage platform investing in geographies like India, China, Europe, Israel, Southeast Asia, the U.S. and Latin America. And we have fintech sector, consumer enterprise, all of that. We've invested in great companies like Affirm and Snapchat and Carta and in India, giants like Oyo and Baiju's and Southeast Asia, like Ola and companies in Latin America, like Story and Frubana. 
And so we've been really proud to kind of do this global investing focus. We, in terms of my background, I started out my career, gosh, working in finance back in 09 during the last recession. I was at the Federal Reserve doing some stuff related to the crisis. And then I worked at Goldman Sachs for a couple of years, mostly on an asset management desk doing equities and commodities trading. I decided that wasn't life for me and went on to do startups for the next seven years. Worked at a couple of venture back startups, started two of my own. They both did not work. And so that's why I'm a VC today. But no, I've, I've been a VC for three and a half years now and lead our Latium investing and a lot of our consumer fintech investing. It's interesting. You as a firm, you guys have a global view, right? So when you are, let's say, getting ready to invest in a company in Brazil or Mexico or anywhere else, are you comparing with similar models in other similar markets, right? I mean, Southeast Asia and Latin America come as a parallel example, but you know, is that something you guys do? Always. We did this with, for example, B2B wholesale marketplaces where investors, and I mentioned, you know, Udon in India, Ola in Southeast Asia, Fair in the US, and Frubana in in the Latin America. We have quite a number of others as well. But when we look at that, we thought about what are the industries and ways that vertical B2B marketplaces surround around, which ones have the highest TPV, the greatest volume process, which ones have the greatest lock-in of customers and the most fragmented base of supply that such as the need is really there. So we always look to and we connect our founders across geographies. We recently did this when we deep dived on spend management as well. We're investors in trip actions in the US, which is around travel. We're investors in Payhawk and Europe and a couple of others globally. And so we always ask ourselves, okay, what are the characteristics of a spend management, expense management platform that work well in different countries? And even right now, you know, I've been looking a lot at what's happening in Brazil with PICS and what's the best analogy to PICS, probably UPI in India. And so I've talked to a number of our colleagues there about like, what did you see unfold? What's the second, third order derivatives of how of unexpected outcomes from having a real-time payment system that's ubiquitously used by hundreds of millions of people. So yes, we love, love, love doing that. It's the great advantage. That's awesome. And let's zoom in on that a little bit on PICS specifically for, I think a lot of people tuning in, they're going to be familiar, but it's essentially a Brazilian government-sponsored real-time payments infrastructure, right? So other economies and markets have had similar initiatives. None has been as successful as quickly as PIX. I know you call it PIX 2.0, right? So tell us about those second order effects that, that you envision happening in the not so distant future. Yeah. PIX is fascinating because it just thinking back to like what was the government trying to do when they released it? You know, they're trying to fight the card networks and the banks. Also, if you think about open banking data, just in terms of who controls payments and who controls our data. I'll talk about maybe both of them a little bit together. And, you know, the banks previously had proprietary information about our finances and the card networks had kind of proprietary access for, you know, our payment rails. And so by introducing PICS, it's saying, hey, here we they've introduced this, you know, payment rails to the entire country and basically onboarded all the merchants and immediately by saying you have to use it. And that creates uh, another alternative that's much cheaper. Merchants in Brazil are now saying, if you pay with PIX, it's going to be X amount cheaper because they don't have to pay the card network fees. 
And so it just increases competition dramatically. When you pair that with open banking and thinking about some of the payment initiation rules, you can start to imagine things like in credit that are a lot easier with underwriting and also collecting. Because now I can have view of all of your financial information from all of the connected accounts. And from open banking, I can see what your finances are and I can better underwrite you. And then from a collections perspective with payment initiation and the PIX rails, I can collect from you more cheaply and with the initiation, not even having to have you redirect back to your natural bank. You can just do the whole experience in app. So I think credit's a pretty obvious one that we'll see some interesting ramifications and what will that do for Neo New Bank, you know, the top Neo Bank in the world. And what will that also do for other credit players? I think we'll have to see. And I think commerce is just the biggest beneficiary from this. Commerce now can happen at the point of sale that is an experience designed by the merchant. And that's a huge difference. It's not as clunky as what we had to do before. It's kind of like as easy as cash but with the digital payments of cash. So I'm really excited to see what can come from it. I mean, I think one other thing I'm looking at, you know, and starting to hear some founders talking about is what if you could build kind of like a rules-based engine layer, an asset light financial layer on top of bank accounts, where because of the payment initiation rules and the picks is, you know, your social security number or your identification number as well, you can kind of authorize and give access to other people to be able to use your accounts you could start to imagine setting up some permission-based rules around that. And that almost achieves like the vision of crypto in terms of smart programmable money. So, you know, and then if I even go further, like what if they connect PIX International, like we saw India connect their UPI to Singapore's system. We connect all of these real-time payment systems around the world. We're going to have real-time instant remittances, which is another kind of, you know, promise of crypto. So it's super fascinating what I think what's coming. The central bank in Brazil, they're open sourcing it. Initially, they want other central banks to kind of adopt the same. But then there's that piece that you mentioned, the international connectivity amongst those other payments rails. So that that could be amazing. One of my most recent guests was Bruno Balducini, who was the head of Financial Institutions Group at Pinheiro Neto. He talked a lot about this, uh, specifically about the credit part, right? How that's part of the opportunity, how now you're going to have PNPL on top of picks. So you've invested in a number of companies that are credit-driven, right? And then credit-heavy. So have we, by the way, at Gilgamesh Ventures. But credit in Latin America is different than credit in the U.S., Right. What are you incorporating in your analysis when you're looking at a credit-driven companies, either in Latin America or in the U.S.? Well, credit in Latin America, specifically Brazil and Mexico, I mean, you're just, your profit pools are so much larger. Your interest rates are so much bigger than what, you know, we can get in the U.S. Our usury caps are around 36% from most states. And so you can't really get APR. It's just that's too high. Anything over, yeah, like low, mid-20s is like predatory almost. And I would say like what I look for in terms of, you know, when I'm analyzing your credit company, the first thing I'm asking is who's on the team? You know, what is their background? Have they really had that risk management experience? Have they had the experience of having to get creative to lend to people who may not have the, you know, credit history and profiles that are as robust as you want? Do they have experience with subprime? 
And do they also understand the debt capital markets? Because anytime you're offering their credit product, you have two customers. You have your end users, but you also have the debt capital markets as your other providers. And people who don't understand that really early on, that you're essentially a marketplace connecting buyers and sellers on a credit product are really going to build their business often incorrectly to start with because they aren't satisfying the needs of their supply side. So that, or demand side, I should say. So that's kind of, you know, the first thing I look for. Then that leads to, okay, what is their underwriting model? Like what are the unique insights they have about underwriting that no one else has? I believe you have to have an advantage in underwriting to really get out of the gates and build a strong credit company. It's normally reflected through low delinquencies and low charge-offs. But what is that unique insight? And I really test teams by understanding, you know, I ask them a lot of deep questions about their model and are they like surfacing new variables they're testing on that I just am not hearing a lot of, you know, the vanilla kind of average market talking about. And then also I look for how long they've tested their credit model before they launched their actual product. So did they have, have they had time to test it? Because I don't necessarily want my equity dollars, you know, to be funding like the testing phase of credit if the founders were fortunate enough to be able to fund that in another way, because it can take two, three years to really train and hone them. So that's kind of the first, you know, three things I look for. And then maybe the last one is really strong access to debt capital markets. So in Brazil, maybe there's some more off-the-shelf products like the FDIC, the FDIC structures. But, you know, understanding the path of how you go from angels and your own money to venture debt to, you know, more structured, larger banks and that path, making sure they kind of have access to and understand that. Yeah, it's a little bit counterintuitive for non Latin America focused investors, the fact that credit can be, has the potential to be more attractive, right, in, in, in Latin versus the US. And like uh, you were mentioning offline that, you know, this kind of also relates to, you know, the most successful new bank coming out of Latin America and new banks in the US struggling a little bit to kind of reach escape velocity. Is that something you think about a lot? Oh, 100%. I mean, it's no surprise to me that Latin America has produced not just like a top neobank, I think the number one neobank in the world, arguably, in terms of just how many customers, what, you know, revenue they're hitting. And there's obviously strong ones coming out in Europe and Asia and different countries. But I think that the difference of that, you know, I think about what's able to happen in Brazil and Mexico versus US, it does come down to like where are those revenue pools and the interest being such a big place to pull from. You can easily cover your losses and your, you know, cost of capital. In the US, everyone's trying to rely on interchange in a market that's kind of overserved for digital, you know, basic checking accounts. The need is not just not the same. So you also look at marketplaces, right? What's going on in, in marketplace land these days? You know, when marketplaces, I hate to say half the time I go, every business is a marketplace. You're just connecting some buyer and some seller. But, you know, yeah, the marketplaces we often were look at were investors in the US and marketplaces, like I mentioned, FAIR, also OutSchool. We invested in TaskRabbit back in the day. You know, what are companies that are kind of like the true 
low managed, like barely, you know, self-directed marketplace, meaning people can come onto the platform, offer their services and give them to each other. I think with marketplaces, they're incredibly hard to get off the ground and incredibly difficult to get them to be unit economic positive. You have to think you typically start with the sell side and you're trying to get them to, you know, have a product that you need. Sometimes you sell them something that looks more like a SaaS product at first, give them kind of business in a box, and then later on open up the distribution to consumers that you've onboarded. But I think marketplaces are, you know, a really tough product to get going. We are not seeing as many kind of like the traditional e-commerce marketplaces in the U.S. breakout right now. It's more so things that have had honestly been started in China. And so looking at like Timu coming over, you know, econ companies like Shine, that's not exactly a marketplace. But I think we're really interested in like the near shoring and the global globalization of marketplaces. That's been, I think, one of the most interesting trends of late. That's interesting. The You mentioned near shoring. And I've seen a lot of marketplaces trying to bridge economies or different regions, different continents. Is it mostly that you're seeing these days mostly B2B marketplaces? Is that kind of like what's taken off mostly recently? More recently, there's been more B2B marketplaces, which I just think there's so many industries. And if you think about the total payment volume that goes through B2B, it's 4x higher than what goes through consumer channels. And so if you can connect like Frubana, like connecting restaurants to their suppliers, or I've seen some in construction and I've seen some in, you know, Beauty, Murado in Latin America. You see them in pharmaceuticals with Pharma. There's so many different categories you could go through that are each distinct that I don't know if you could build a consumer marketplace in each of those categories. And so, yeah, it's definitely a bigger market. Back when I used to host the words of the podcast, I, I interviewed your partner, Alex Tosic, and he was saying that payments are the motor oil of marketplaces, right? And how it's, you know, fintech is so interconnected with marketplaces, you know? So how about like thinking of your years as a venture capital, you know, what have been your biggest lessons? A lot of people tuning in, you know, maybe they're getting started, they're more junior and larger VCs. It'll be interesting to hear your reflections. Oh, gosh, I've had so many. I mean, I think one of the top ones you learn early on about like just how we do the role, like venture is a sales job and you have to have a lot of stamina. You have to have that reserve of energy in yourself that you can always pull out to smile at a founder, like listen to their story intently, even though it's like the 15th pitch you've heard that day. And just like a salesperson, know you're going to do that every single day for the foreseeable future. Maybe not 15 pitch calls a day, but you know, still having tons of pitch calls, having a lot of energy for them and to just keep going, even though the answer of almost all of them is no. And so that's a big, you know, I think learning everyone has to like understand and be comfortable with. And I see a lot of people turn out from venture who aren't great with that. The other thing I would say, another big learning is you are selling capital, but you're really selling yourself because capital is a commodity. And you can get it in a lot of different formats and a lot of different product packages in a lot of places. And so especially in, you know, the type of companies we're trying to invest in the best of the best, they have a lot of options. And so I found that venture is an extremely introspective job and that you have to know why you're so different. Why is your capital better? 
and then you have to sell yourself. And if you can't do that, you probably aren't going to be able to win against like the Midas list, you know, where the brand is kind of taking over. So I think about that a lot, all the time. Tons more lessons, I think, also on just kind of like the job working with founders, how to be the best board member, being a coach, not a dictator, obviously, is this the way to go from a board member perspective, but also a lot of learnings around working with your other board members and just being aligned with them. I don't think I realized how important that was going to be in the beginning. But now that we're in 2023, the tough year, I've called it, like having lots of conversations, alignment to influence, because we're not private equity. We don't own the company. You can't tell people what to do. You have to influence what to do. And so that is really a lot of like collaborative persuasion, influence work that goes on, not just with you and the founder, but the other board members too. Here's a question. And I know this is a an endless debate, but you know what's the difference with your LPs, your investors, and your founders? Like, who is a customer? Like, how should we view each one of them? They're both customers, you know. Like, same to what I was talking about with credit. Our LPs are customers who we sell packaged asset classes and Lightspeed. What they're interested in is a global platform of multi-stage assets, like seed through late stage and even like direct co-invest at the later stages. And for our founders, like what we're selling, the product we're selling is capital plus me, like I was talking about. And, you know, what does that come with in terms of hiring or guidance and insights or working with your team or going deep on kind of like just your personal development? So I really view both of them as our customers. And, you know, the marketplace of me is I connect my like, you know, pension fund or like endowment to a founder, really. And I'm in the middle of facilitating that capital and making sure both partners are happy. So VCs are also B2B marketplaces. <laughs> Everyone's a marketplace. Everyone's a marketplace. <laughs> I, I put out the same question on the LinkedIn poll. I never do LinkedIn polls, but this is one I did. And it came down like almost 50-50. You know? And I think it was 51% people said LPs and 49% said founders. Yeah. I think where they come in conflict is where you really have to pay attention and try to do as right as possible by both. And when do they come in conflict? It comes in the 2023 tough year where, you know, on the one hand, it might be better for the LP to distribute capital, wind down a company that doesn't seem to have a lot of prospects and, you know, kind of give them that liquidity early. But on the other hand, like, what's your fiduciary duty to the company? And maybe they do have more months and that could create another chance for them to have another shot and then increase the upside. And so that's where I always find we have to do our best work is really thinking through the tensions of our two customers if they do. And generally, they should always be aligned because if the company does better, the LP does better. But you know, there are some circumstances where maybe there's different risk assessments by the fiduciary members around the table around like what is that likelihood of actually turning things around. Yeah, which is why you should be very picky and careful of who you bring on as LPs or who you invest in. How about portfolio construction? I mean, you you were mentioning before we started recording that you invest only in a handful of companies a year. Tell us a bit about your portfolio construction strategy. 
Yeah, more broadly at Lightspeed, we think about it from a geo perspective, a sector perspective, and a stage perspective. So how we think about portfolio construction, we think about it by stage, geography, and sector. And, you know, we raised seven and a half billion funds last year. Those ones, most of it's going to be to growth stage companies because just the dollars are bigger, about five out of that too. And then we have some early stage funds, which we also split into kind of earlier and less early of early. And, you know, within from a sector perspective, a lot more of our investments historically have been in enterprise companies. And so we think about how much do we want to allocate to Latin America or to consumer or to fintech. You know, each kind of group has in mind an amount they might want to do. And we're all relating it back up to kind of our like targets that we want to return. And some of them are more volatile. Consumer is a much more volatile sector than enterprise. But when consumer works and when you hit it big, you know, the returns far outweigh the loss rates. Makes sense. And before I let you go, Mercedes, where does AI fall for you right now? Because, you know, everyone's talking about it. I think we're all getting emails from some random company that's incorporating AI into their offering. Where do you stand specifically on AI? I try not to involve myself too much in AI. I deep dived into crypto the last two years. And I think if I go from crypto to AI, I might just get a little bit too much bad reputation. So for now, I'm sticking with fintech and crypto. Literally do enjoy these two categories a lot. But you know, we have a deep team here that's been looking at AI. We invested in companies like Stability AI and Chaos Labs and a bunch of other really exciting ones. I think this latest version of, you know, Chat GPT is going to be only more advanced in the next couple of quarters. And so, you know, where do I see it creeping into other sectors yet? No, it right now it's still a little bit more like technology, you know, finding its problem. But I have heard of fintech founders already saying, we're going to incorporate it for personal financial management, budgeting apps. So I'm excited to see it actually like become part of like workflow. I think its greatest potential right now is in productivity, the office workspace, you know, like taking notes for me so I don't have to type the whole time I'm on a call with the founder. That stuff would be amazing. Yeah, I've heard of more than a few CEOs incorporating or using chat GPT to prepare investor updates, which I don't know if I... We should be worried or amazed at it. <laughs> I think if they're an expert in prompts and actually like figuring out how to feed it, you know, the small amounts, more power to you if that saves you time. I personally love writing and I love like thinking through writing. So I would, I have to, I have need to try it more to see if that like enhances my thinking. If it didn't, I probably just wouldn't even, you know, attempt it. Just free write. So Mercedes, last question, you know, what has you the most excited for, you know, the next couple of years? Years is very long. I was going to say for this year, probably what I'm most excited about, you know, we wrote a team post on like the 2023 fintech trends that we're following. And I'm really excited as we talked about Brazil 2.0, PIX 2.0, what's happening in Brazil. I'm also really excited about vertical SaaS fintech around specific categories. We talked about marketplaces, but when you apply that with payments and commerce as well, we have a company, Fidu in Argentina, that does this around private schools. You just get a really powerful lock-in model. And I'd say like more broadly, what I'm excited about over the next couple of years is we're in this macro environment that is 
we haven't seen for a very long time. I'm most excited about the founders who are starting now with this mentality because they're building on hard mode. And what that will produce in five years is it's going to be incredible. Like the thing I lamented so much about the last few years was like, am I in crazy town? Everyone's building these underfunded, you know, underbuilt models. I felt like we had 2000 and 2008 happening to us last year, like the dot-com bubble of underbuilt company business models and then the crypto 2008 of like over leverage. And I'm excited to just get back to some normalcy, no longer like the tale of two recessions. Like let's just have the 2023 cycle and see who comes out from that. They're going to be the survivors. Yeah, I really think this is like a golden era of like pre-seed companies getting started. When I look at, you know, just our pipeline right now, there's no below average founder. You know, it's a ton of companies. Well, not as many as a few years ago, but still a lot. And they're all very high caliber. So, you know, it's going to be great. <laughs> like you starting something now, you have the wherewithal, like the stamina and the fear and like almost the crazy factor to start something in this market when everyone else is flight to like a good income. So you're right. I hadn't thought about that. I haven't seen the type of founders I saw starting seed stage companies a few years ago. It's a totally different crowd. Well, Mercedes, really appreciate you joining and taking the time out of your very busy day. It's been great uh, learning about your reflections and all the analysis very good analysis that you guys do at Lightspeed. So I hope we continue this chats offline and into the future. Thank you again for having me. Thanks for tuning in. And I hope you enjoyed this episode with Mercedes, partner at Lightspeed. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. It helps and means a lot. And if you have any suggestions or thoughts about the show, please just drop me a line on Twitter or LinkedIn. Signing off till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.